Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Every week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our world. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field. And then together we interview a special guest about their work in design because design is everywhere and so are we. This week, we're chatting about an important topic, the role of design in creating real climate action. I'll be joined by Sarah Harrison, co-founder of Climate Designers and The Determined. And then later on, we will chat with Bobby Gill, Director of Development and Communications at Savory Institute, which uses holistic management to facilitate the large-scale regeneration of the world's grasslands and the livelihoods of their inhabitants, including us humans. Together, they will talk about how designers of all kinds can take climate action. But first, I wanted to recognize some of our newest members at the museum. I love our members. We couldn't do this show. We couldn't have a design museum without them. So a special shout out to our three latest members, Laura Bunt, who has a student membership. Thank you, Laura. Dave Steve with an individual membership and Heather Jones with another individual membership. Thank you so much to you three and thank you to all our members. Your support makes this show and everything we do at the museum possible. If you like this podcast, Design Museum Everywhere has so many programs and offerings for you to enjoy. You can join a global community of design thinkers and change makers. You'll see our exhibitions online, our live events, get our magazine. We provide so many opportunities for you to engage with and experience design and really bring the world of design to your doorstep. Doesn't matter where in the world you are, you can be a member of Design Museum Everywhere. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership to check it out. Okay, on to this week's topic, designing for climate action. At Climate Designers, Sarah Harrison and her team use their creative skills for climate action and ask the question, what if every designer was a climate designer? They provide resources, knowledge, and community to support designers to be climate leaders everywhere they work. Sarah Harrison joins me as our guest co-host this week to chat more about her work. Sarah spent over a decade designing software and brands in San Francisco's tech startup industry before burnout led her to start over. With no choice but to apply her skills for positive change and social impact, she co-founded The Determined in 2016 and Climate Designers in 2019. Sarah also co-teaches a social entrepreneurship class in the Interaction Design Graduate Program at California's College of the Arts every summer. Sarah's work helps designers and creative professionals make a meaningful impact. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm super hyped to be here. Yeah, I love the work you all are doing. I would love to start with like, I guess, like the big question. What is a climate designer? The really big answer to the big question is a climate designer is just a really good designer. But we're shifting the emphasis to climate because it's something that's been overlooked by our culture for a very long time. So it's doing good design, which is environmentally friendly. It is, you know, sustainable in the the meaning of the word, as in like you design things that are meant to last. You design systems that won't burn themselves out and collapse eventually. If you've designed something that's meant to be thrown away after like one use, 
how is that good design? I don't care how pretty it is or how polished it is or how it looks like. It's just a more thorough and holistic way of looking at the world than what has been done over the last, I don't know, 50 years or something. So it's really just good design, but it's bringing climate to the forefront of our priority list because that has been neglected for so long. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment for you as a designer when you were sort of like, we got to do something <laughs> as a creative community, right? Was there like a lightning bolt moment or did it build over time? When did you feel like, okay, I got to I gotta work on this? Yeah, absolutely. And um, in the intro, you mentioned a little bit of it. it. I was working in the software industry and in startups in Silicon Valley and kind of just burn out the stress life of working 80 hour weeks or whatever and just living and eating and breathing the startup life really had me stop and rethink things. And at that time, there was also a lot of things on, I don't know, my Facebook feed from the IPCC for whatever reason at that point in time. This was like, I don't know, 2013, 2015. That really brought to my attention, I guess before that, I had this idea like climate change was something that I learned about in grade school. I remember third grade textbooks describing the carbon dioxide cycle and all this stuff. And so I was like, okay, it's in my textbook. Like clearly science has it all figured out. And by the time I grow up, it's going to be solved. So no big deal. And I found myself in my mid thirties reading these IPCC news headlines and realizing that I have grown up and it hasn't been figured out. <laughs> right. If anything, maybe it's gotten like less understood or the yeah. truth is harder to find, right? And so there's kind of this aha moment when you're like, you realize that the story you've been reading is actually about you all along <laughs> or something <laughs> like that, where it's like, you are the adult now and mm -hmm. you, hero of the story, all of a sudden have through your life earned these skills like problem solving and communication and persuasion and all of these things. And you realize that all this mental energy and effort and time that you have spent on designing the button or the landing page or whatever to get somebody to click could much better be spent getting somebody to sign that petition or buy the product that's actually better for the planet or help the company that is doing something great for farmers or, you know, like so many different things that actually need the boost that a good designer gives any company. We haven't been focusing our energy on giving that boost to the companies that are already out there struggling to make the world better while also making a profit and, you know, paying their employees. So that was kind of the thing that like the nuts and bolts of the idea and putting it all together was a process that took very, very, very long time. But that's where it started. And, you know, like you said in my bio, it was kind of a starting over for me because I knew how to navigate the design career in the startup industry, but I had no idea how to navigate the world of do I get into B Corps? Do I get into design for nonprofits? Do I start my own company? Do I um, become a farmer and work with plants <laughs> myself? Like that was on the table. I actually went and got a yoga certification. <laughs> like I did not know what I was doing. Um, so I really tried a lot of different things to figure out what the heck 
would be the way to go about putting my skills and my talents to a use that my brain and nervous system felt like was worthwhile, which is kind of the burnout aspect of it. When you burn out, it seems like, at least in my experience, it seems like the the body is not willing to put forth the effort and stress on anything that is not worthwhile. And that is probably different uh, for everybody. <laughs> and so that's why I said, like, I really had no choice. Like, I had to go and figure out what was worthwhile in my nervous system's point of view and chase it, go after it. Yeah, I, that's such a good point because, it's, you know, someone listening might be like, Sarah was burned out, so she decided to start <laughs> a new organization, which is so much work. But you're right. It's got to align. It's got to like be part of your spirit. So tell me about starting Climate Designers, the organization, and what it's all about. Yeah. So the journey, Mark O'Brien is my co-founder and business partner in this whole thing. One of the things that I went through when I was like, I'm going to start over is, you know, maybe I just go freelance for a while while I figure it out. And so I started meeting with people who were doing freelance work in the Bay Area because I didn't even know how to really do freelance work. <laughs> so <laughs> I had a friend. I said, I'm thinking about doing, you know, some like social impact design, design for good. And I'm interested in teaching, which was another thing. And I'm interested in freelancing. And she put all those things together. And she was like, you need to meet Mark O'Brien. He's a designer freelance who's been doing design for good for nine years on his own as an independent. And so that was really cool. We found that we had some compatible you know, philosophies about the way that we approach design and designing, you know, what whatever we're designing for, like coming up with really bold, out there, unique ideas and not doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. And so we got together and formed a design agency called The Determined, which we designed to um, feel like a punk rock band <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. And we were originally designed for social good, which was, you know, really broad. And over a few years, we decided to niche down to climate, which turns out is actually really broad too. But once we started shifting our taglines and our website and like how we describe ourselves, we kind of realized that there wasn't a good way to say design for climate that was socially acceptable or like mainstream. In graphic design, there's green graphic design or sustainable design. Um, in architecture or whatever, there's sustainable design. But our approach was more strategic and just have a way of thinking that's a little bit more holistic. So I think it was Mark, like somebody that Mark knows started calling him that climate designer guy. <laughs> and so then he yes. posted on <laughs> on uh, on his LinkedIn, he was like, uh, something about like, you know, I'm kind of like, trying out this thing, seeing how it rolls off the tongue. I'm like that climate designer guy. And a lot of people chimed in on that post and it seemed like it was something. So that's really how it started is like, okay, we're shifting our focus to focus on this. And we've been doing this for like a year. And like, it sort of seems like there's other people who are doing this too. And so it just sort of snowballed from there. We launched a landing page that we put at climatedesigners.org. We put some of our friends who were focusing on climate in their design career as big photos on the on the front page. Um, we did a branding exercise and a strategy exercise, just the two of us whiteboarding. And we really wanted to focus on making it something that was appealing to designers, 
not something that looked like eco-friendly, green, tree-hugging, granola hippie, that kind of brand. So we we explicitly avoided things and still tried to do um, avoid the things like green and blue and the leaf motif and all of that. And we're like, you know, what are the trends in design right now, like visually in brands and how do we um, apply that to what we're doing? So that was kind of where we started and um, people started signing up. Um, another thing that was going on at the same time is Merck and a couple of friends of his put out a manifesto. If anyone's a graphic designer out there, you might have learned about the uh, First Things First manifesto in 1964, I believe, which was about um, the advertising industry and urging designers to think a little bit more holistically about what they are amplifying when they do advertising design work. Is this really building the world that we want to be building? And so it's along those same veins, but um, the language is updated to be more broad to all designers and um, to include the climate crisis and where we are today. And so we got a lot of people who were signing that manifesto, kind of a pledge. And then we put on the manifesto website, which is at firstthingsfirst2020.org, I believe off my memory. We put at the bottom of that, you know, um, designed by climate designers, just a little thing that went back to the website to kind of link them together. And anyway, uh, that was in October of, I'm going to say 2019. We started having monthly meetings in San Francisco and um, little monthly meetups at a brewery and seeing who came out. And by the second or third month, we had like 75 people at this meetup. And so we're like, okay, clearly we've struck a nerve. And we met these really cool designers who had their own branding studio and these designers who had their own um, packaging studio, designing everything, packaging sustainably. And we're really passionate about packaging design. And we're like, wow, this is a really kind of like a cool underground scene that we didn't even know existed. And there were a lot of people who were really interested in it and curious about it, but didn't know it existed. And um, yeah, it just kind of snowballed from there. The organization Climate Designers is still technically uh, just a project of the Determined LLC, but we are working on incorporating it or whatever the word is for making it a co-op. So we don't want to be the owners of the organization. We have chapters in, I think, maybe 10 or 15 countries. Like we're very global and the chapter leaders kind of run their own region, run their own meetups, run their own circles. And so we want everybody who's putting work and effort into it to to have a stake in it and to be part of making it something great. And you know, that's a process that we're we know nothing about and we're finding that not very many people know much about. It's still kind of being birthed and <laughs> If we are building the world that we want to be building, I think that that's the, the right future. It's the right thing to do. Yeah, that seems like a great structure for it. As you're talking to these folks, as you're doing your own work in this space, like what have you determined is the designer's role in combating this crisis? Yeah, there's so much. There's so much. Like I said, designers and a few other industries, just very few have unique advantage in that we're able to organize information and help 
make sense of complex things. Depending on the focus that you have in design, and we're very open, um, it doesn't have to be just graphic design or whatever. Sometimes if your focus is on visual and communication, that's important too, because honestly, a huge chunk of the climate problem is a communication problem. If you are an industrial designer and you work for a company that's producing things made out of plastic usually or paper or you know whatever like knowing what your thing is made out of and where that thing is sourced and urging people to find a better material or something that has a you know thinking about the end of life and the beginning of life of that whole material and that can be a whole thing in and of itself but in a way the designer is sort of one of the words that comes up often is the gatekeeper that's not necessarily true but it's kind of true where not anyone else is really caring that much about what something's made out of or where it was sourced like most of the people most of the other people in the organization care how much it costs and so there is a little bit of putting your foot down and saying if this is going to be good design we have to pay a little bit more for this product yeah yeah sarah this is so great thank you and thanks for all the work you're doing to bring this community together it means a lot thanks for having me and for reaching out to uh chat with me yeah listeners to see more of sarah's work in this space visit climatedesigners.org And stick around, and we'll bring Bobby Gill into the conversation after a quick break. Design Museum Everywhere's week-long event, Design Museum Week, is coming soon. Join us April 25th to 29th to celebrate accomplishments, share new ideas, and inspire through design. The week will reconceptualize design's role in 21st century systems and issues through dozens of events that mash up our 12 impact areas. Workplace, business, play, entrepreneurship, sustainability, education, healthcare, social impact, data visualization, diversity, vibrant cities, and civic innovation. Design Museum Week 2022 will feature five days of hybrid online, offline events that spark conversation, inspire leaders, and educate professionals working in all areas of design. While most sessions will be virtual, we look forward to welcoming attendees for in-person gatherings as well in cities across the U.S. Go to designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events to get your tickets today. All right, folks, we're back and we're joined by our special guest, Bobby Gill. Bobby leads development and communications for the Savory Institute, a global nonprofit facilitating the large scale regeneration of the world's grasslands to address the root cause of food, water and climate security. Since 2009, the Savory Institute has influenced management on over 42 million acres of desertifying grassland. A biological resources engineer by training, Bobby was a lead scientific reviewer at the FDA before making the leap into regenerative agriculture, where he now explores the intersectionality of personal and planetary health and how to distill the complexity of these issues to new audiences. His TEDx talk, It's Not the Cow, It's the How, discusses the symbiosis between grasslands and the grazer and why everyone, regardless of dietary choice, depends on properly managed livestock for regenerating these dying landscapes. Bobby, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Great to have you. I would love to start by you telling us what grasslands are and why they're important. Let's start simple. Yeah. Keeping it nice and easy. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, grasslands are a critical ecosystem for planetary health, but they are often extremely undervalued and underappreciated for what they provide to us, for all of us, no matter where you live. You know, when you think of environmental concerns, you're often thinking of, you know, polar bears in the Antarctic, you know, floating on melting ice caps, or you're thinking of like saving the whales or like tree huggers and the rainforest. And, you know, there's all these charismatic megafauna and these like big, beautiful landscapes. No one really thinks about grass, but <laughs> grasslands in actuality represent one third of the Earth's landmass. So, 12 and a half billion acres are grasslands worldwide. And so this is, you know, the American West. This is the Pampas in South America. This is the Mongolian steppe. This is the Australian outback. This is sub-Saharan Africa. Every continent has these large swaths of grasslands. And they aren't just these big, wide open fields of nothing. They are these beautiful mosaics of biodiversity where... North America used to be expansive grasslands, you know, the Great Plains. We used to have somewhere between 30 to 60 million bison roaming across North America in these massive herds. And there were other grazing animals as well, like elk and all the deer and all this other stuff. But there's grazing herbivores everywhere in the world. There's the great wildebeest migration in Africa. And, you know, millennia ago, there used to be even more megafauna that used to roam the earth, but they've all kind of uh, gone extinct through either human intervention or through climate change that disrupted their habitat. To bring it back to grasslands, though, grasslands support the, you know, they provide habitat for countless species, uh, both above ground and below. You know, you got lots of critters and bugs that are in the soil, but you also have cows and bison and antelope and rabbits and mice and snakes and ground nesting birds. I mean, you know, you could go on and on and on. And also a billion people depend on their day-to-day -day livelihoods directly from grasslands. But there's also not just the those species that live on the grasslands, but there's also the ecosystem services they provide. And so, you know, there's been a lot of talk recently about soil health and how that can be this incredibly valuable tool for uh, mitigating climate change because you improve soil health and you can draw carbon out of the atmosphere and through photosynthesis, it stores it into the soil. Grasslands have the potential to do that. You think of each blade of grass, it's essentially like a little solar panel that through the magic of synthesis, it's pulling that CO2 out of the atmosphere and storing it down as atmospheric carbon. And then with that, that improves the water holding capacity. So it activates the soil like a sponge so that recharges underground aquifers and rivers and streams. Uh, I mean, there's just a host of things that grasslands do. And so you know, it's it's one of these things where we often, you know, drive past a, a big open field and go, oh, well, OK, it's just a big open field. So what? But the reality is, is there's so much potential for what is going on there and what could be happening there if that land is being cared for properly. Grasslands are incredibly important for all of us on this planet, uh, whether we know it or not. And so uh, the Savory Institute, we're here to bring attention to the importance of our global grasslands and to help farmers and ranchers and pastoralists become better stewards of our global grasslands because we all depend on them. I'd love to learn, like, what is happening to these grasslands? How and why, you know, mentioned this term uh, in the intro about desertification, like, 
what's the current status and what's happening in these spaces that's degrading these important landscapes? Yeah. So depending on whose research you look at, anywhere between 30 to 70% of our global grasslands are dying and turning to desert. Process is known as desertification. And what that means is the grasses are dying off and they are getting more and more spaced out. And that creates bare ground between the plots of grasses. And you're, you know, you might be asking, well, so what? It's just some bare ground. It's just some dirt. But when water hits bare ground or when wind hits bare ground, that's what causes erosion and dust storms. And that soil is then lost and it's carried and deposited as sediment elsewhere. It's what leads to things like. There's this massive dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico because of all the nitrogen fertilizer that's being run off of, you know, down the Mississippi and out into the Gulf. Erosion and loss of topsoil is uh, an incredibly damaging problem because topsoil holds that fertility. It's, it's the bed of life for the production of all food that we all depend on. So why is desertification happening? Well, to go back to what I was saying about every continent on the earth used to have these massive herds of large herbivores grazing and moving about. That was a symbiotic relationship, this relationship between grazer and grassland. They need each other to survive. A tree sheds its leaves every fall and then grows new ones in the spring. Grass doesn't have the ability to shed its grass leaves. It needs to be grazed by an herbivore to continue that cycle of life and for those nutrients to move back into the soil. So when you remove the grazing herbivores from the landscape, you've broken that symbiotic relationship between the grassland and the grazer, and the nutrients no longer have a way to cycle back into the soil. So a lot of people have this thing against livestock and rightfully so when you look at feedlots and the industrialization of animal agriculture, they've taken animals, they've put them in pens, there's these huge manure lagoons, they feed them all these terrible diets that are unhealthy for them. And that of course is a huge problem and we believe that that needs to stop as well. But the only option is not get rid of animals. There is a better way to graze animals and to do so that's essentially grazing in nature's image, the way it's always been done, the way wild herds used to move about the grasslands. And that's what we teach farmers and ranchers to do, is to graze their animals away that in the, in the way that nature intended. And when you do that, you're honoring these symbiotic relationships between grassland and grazer, and you're allowing the grasses to thrive and really allowing a biodiversity of grasses to fill different ecological niches. And you're allowing for that nice, rich, healthy soil to develop and allowing photosynthesis to continue. So it's really the broken cycles of removing the grazing herbivore off of the grassland. Or there's also ways that they can be mismanaged. You know, there's overgrazing that happens, you know, if you just set your animals out to pasture and take a hands-off approach, that doesn't work either. The right way to do it is very uh, actively managed with a lot of intentionality. Yeah. So tell us about the Savory Institute, because I imagine you're trying to teach folks how to do this and how to even maybe regenerate some of these landscapes. We are. And um, it's really amazing to see what's possible, considering how many folks seem to get it wrong. But, um, you know, the Savory Institute is named after Alan Savory. He is a rangeland ecologist from Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. But back in the 60s, you know, he was working as a rangeland ecologist in uh, Rhodesia. And he was noticing that 
what he had been taught his whole life was that livestock are a problem. We need to get rid of the livestock. We need to get rid of the animals. The animals cause too much damage to the land. We just need to take a hands-off approach. Well, they did that back then. And they actually got rid of a lot of elephants because that was uh, something that the research had pointed to. Like we're, the elephant populations are too many, so let's get rid of the elephants and then the land will respond and, and get better. Well, they did and it didn't. So he was like, oh, wait, went in and, and dove in to figure out what was going on and realized that it's it's not just the presence of animals on a landscape, yes or no. It's, it's how those animals are managed. It's the behavior of the animals and their movement and the timing. So he developed a methodology called holistic management. And essentially, it's moving the animals about like the wild herds once did. It's getting animals to the right place at the right time with the right behavior and for the right reasons. And when you do that, the landscape responds, the grasses grow back, the animals are healthier, the, the wildlife are healthier, and you know abundance prevails. So that's essentially what we teach people to do at the Savory Institute. And we do it all across the globe. You know, We work with the Maasai in Kenya, we work with gauchos in Patagonia, reindeer herders in Norway, you know, sheep farmers in New Zealand, cowboys in the American West, you know, all sorts of different folks and cultures and geographies. Uh, there's a lot of different people that are managing grazing animals and we're helping them do it the best that they can. Sounds amazing. I love one thing that you said earlier about um, the grass needs the cattle to graze it. And I think that's a really salient point. You need the animals in in some cases or in most cases and one of the things that i'm learning about ecology and evolution and just this weird wild world we live in is everything that's here is here because it has to be if it didn't need to be here it probably would have gone extinct and so another thing that comes up a lot in these debates in this tribal divisive world that we live in. I'm curious, uh, Bobby, what your answer would be for this one. But I also try to interject when somebody says, you know, people versus nature, human beings are a virus, is a cancer, you know, that kind of thing. All of the humans just need to go away and let nature be. What would you say in debate with that person? <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely a belief that many people have that humans are separate from nature. And I think that's a very Western view of the world. Um, I think if you go and you take an indigenous view uh, that many indigenous populations have, they believe that humans are part of nature that, and that not just humans are part of nature, but also you know, rocks are part of nature and they are alive. And so are trees and so are grasses and so are animals and so is the soil and so is everything. You know, everything around us is alive and part of one interconnected whole. And that view of the world gives you respect for those things and decreases the likelihood that you're going to abuse it and take advantage of it. When you view humans separate from nature, you view nature as an other. And others are to be treated differently. Um, and so I think that othering of nature is a problematic mindset to, to put yourself in because, you know, you respect you yourself because you're, you know, I have life. So therefore, like, I need to care for myself and I need to care for my family and I need to care for other human beings. 
And then like, I'll take it a step further and like, I'm going to care for the animals that are like cute and fuzzy and maybe look more like me. But how many steps further do you take that? Like, do you, re- okay, you respect the life of humans and cows and let's say koala bears. What about like worms? What, okay. What about like mollusks, like grass? Like, where do you draw the line? And so it's this separation between human and nature that I think causes folks to to make decisions that benefits themselves and others that are similar to themselves rather than acknowledging the interconnectedness of everything around us we are definitely part of nature we have been for millions of years you know humans have been evolving for the past 2 million years or so and you know we fill an important ecological niche on this planet uh, as does every other species on this planet. And we interact with all of those species and they interact with us and we all depend on each other. You guys are making me think of this phenomenon that I just learned about called the overview effect. Have you heard of this? And with astronauts? Yeah. So it's this like shift in astronauts' minds. You know, they're, they're in space, they're looking at the earth. And from that overview perspective, they're seeing just how fragile the earth really is. I mean, like the atmosphere looks like this little like film, you know, on this, this ball. And it just kind of, I mean, I can't describe it maybe because I've never felt it, but it just changes, I guess, the way that they think about, I mean, right. There's no borders. You can't see the borders of the countries. You can't see, you know, differences between people. And I want, I'm just curious from both of your perspectives, as you're both thinking about this, like we can't all go into space yet. And I wonder how you think we can use design, use media, use persuasion to like get this overview effect for more people, because I think that's what it's going to take to kind of shift these conversations. The word that's coming to mind as you talk about, you know, astronauts in space looking down at that little blue dot is perspective. Um, It's that shift in perspective that allows you to see things through a different lens. With holistic management, when we're talking to farmers and ranchers, we talk about the different windows in a room. You know, you can be looking through one window your whole life, and that's how you see that room. But you've never walked around to the other side to look in the other window to see what you're missing or to see it from a different view. And I think that's the case for a lot of us. And as communicators, like I don't necessarily consider myself a designer. That's why I have Sarah and the climate designers that are helping me with Savory. But, you know, from a marketing and communication standpoint, I often think of how can I shift the perspectives of the, of the audiences that I'm talking to, Um, you know, whether that's through data and teaching people about soil health and the importance of photosynthesis and that sort of stuff. But that's one piece of it that's kind of like heady and logical. And I often find that to, to really get that paradigm shift within someone that causes them to change their actions and how they view the world, that requires a little more storytelling and moving into more of that heart space, you know, moving down from the head to the heart. And so getting into story and showing, you know, what the lives of these people are like, you know, whether we're talking about what humans used to look like out on the savannas of Africa when we were evolving in the early days and those symbiotic relationships with, you know, the wild grazers on the African savannas, or we're talking about cultures that exist today, 
that depend on livestock and what those relationships look like. Getting into those stories really helps shift perspectives for people to understand that it's not this plants versus animals narrative that some have made it out to be. And instead, oh, there's a different thing going on here that I wasn't paying attention to before. One of the things that, Bobby, you've mentioned a lot um, when through working together that I'd love for you to talk more about is the idea that holistic management is not just about how you manage your land, but it's uh, something in the operations of the company Savory itself. And um, I imagine sort of in the way that you think about everything. So I'm just wondering, you know, especially with Savory, what are some things in the day-to-day that are more holistic? Well, you're right. Holistic management is a lot more than a grazing system. I like to think that it's a systems thinking approach towards managing the complexities of the living world. So, you know, we as humans are very good at taking something that's got a lot of different parts and reducing it down to the smallest individual piece we can so that we can understand that piece. And then we do that for the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. And then we understand all the different cogs that go into the machine. And we've gotten really good at that because as humans, we depend on tools and we've developed amazing technologies over the millennia that we've been here. The problem becomes that reductionist way of thinking, which is really good when you're talking about machines and technology, the same way of thinking cannot be applied to nature, which is a living and breathing organism. Machines are mechanical and complicated. You can understand all the individual parts. You can break it apart. You can replace them. Biological systems that are living and breathing are not complicated. They are complex. And there's a difference between complicated and complex. Complexity is infinite. It means you'll never be able to understand all the different pieces and all the different inner workings, no matter how hard you try. And there are emergent outcomes and properties that come out of that system, often at random that you can't predict. And so when you try to control a biological system, you end up failing and it ends up creating what are called wicked problems. So what we've found is that in land management, many people approach it from this mechanized worldview where they try to control nature. Okay, well, I'm just gonna put this fertilizer on and that's gonna get me this output and I'll tweak this to optimize this and make this more efficient and do this and do that. And it ends up wreaking havoc and having downstream effects and, you know, a lot of these external costs that aren't factored in uh, that we're not necessarily paying attention to, but we learn about like decades later. So what we do is we help people see that the reductionist way of interacting with the living world is problematic. And instead to take a step back and instead of trying to control nature, recognize your place within nature and how you can work within it. So moving from a place of control to cooperation. And so rather than things being predictable, it's embracing the randomness of it and instead building in rapid feedback loops so that you can say, all right, this is the direction I want to move in. I'm going to try to move in this direction, but I'm going to ensure that I've got feedback loops so that I know I stay on course. And I recognize that what I do to the ecology also has downstream effects to other things. So I'm going to try to keep as wide of a view as I can so that I'm looking at the ecological pieces, the financial pieces, the social well-being pieces, because what you affect affects people. Um, you know, all of these things are interconnected. And it's really that holistic view that 
allows for a different way of being with the natural world. And so, you know, as Sarah was alluding to, this is what we teach farmers and ranchers to do in terms of managing their land. But it's something that we do as a nonprofit within our organization. So the way we manage our organization uh, is very holistic. And so there's a lot of trust. There's a lot of, okay, just like you want to ensure you've got good water cycles on your land and good energy flow of sunlight being converted into vegetation. We want to make sure in our organization, we've got good communication flow. And instead of a biodiversity of species on a grassland, we want to make sure we have a diversity of opinions that are represented within our organization. You know, how can we take these principles of living systems and apply these same principles to our organization? In doing so, it's it's kind of wild. Like working for the Savory Institute is unlike anything I've ever done in my life. Like we do everything so different. My wife is often listening in on meetings and she's like, what in the world are you guys talking about? Uh, but we do things differently for a reason because an organization is comprised of living beings. A landscape is comprised of living beings and you can't ultimately control them. Each of those living beings has autonomy and agency and there's randomness and there's external factors and there's more than you know is going on. So yeah, there's there's beauty to what is out there in the living world and um, it requires that stepping back and just embracing it and flowing with it. And when you do, it's a wonderful thing. I want to thank you both so much for being here. Thank you, Bobby. It really means a lot. Yeah, thank you. This, this has been a fun conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, listeners, to see more of Bobby's work and check out his TEDx talk, go to savory.global slash TEDx. Now it's that time. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design. These are our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. I think I've said on the podcast that my wife and I are expecting our third child very soon. And um, we are totally not the kind of family who is like organized enough to have like matching outfits or matching pajamas, but something about the new little guy coming. So this holiday season, we got these slippers, which I will hold up. You can't see them listeners, but Sarah can see them for each of us. I don't even know where we got them. Maybe like Old Navy or something, but they are like the big, like red and black, like plaid. And uh, each of this, uh, you can get, so mine say Papa Bear. And then Nicole says, says Mama Bear. And then my two kids have Lil Bear. And then we got the baby bear ones to be ready. So it was like in the moment, amazing. And like we wore them on like, you know, Christmas Eve and everyone took a picture, yay. But I think the reason I wanted to bring them up now and the holidays of course are over is I just, I see them around the house and it's just like this like great feeling. Like you see these like little slippers that say like baby bear and you're like, oh, it's pretty cool. So um, yeah, highly recommend like family branded. <laughs> <laughs> indoor comfortable footwear as that's my weekly dose <laughs> <laughs> amazing design is everywhere design is everywhere and you're you're making me think of something cozy to recommend myself i have these cashmere pants that i recently ordered from gentleherd.com 
they let's let's see here. We source our cashmere and wool from the world's largest pasture in our Mongolia. So call back to the topic. And they uh, say we employ workers maintaining labor rights, source our materials and utilize transportation, emphasizing sustainability from start to finish. But they're so comfortable and stylish for, you know, cashmere pants. I haven't taken them off since I got them. Nice. <laughs> Which is nice. like, I probably really should. Um, but yeah, highly recommend Gentle Herd. Mm, amazing. I love it. I love this weekly dose theme that we got going on. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, whether it's cozy or not, uh, I will totally share it on the podcast. So you can tweet it at me at Sam Aquilano, and then I will share your weekly dose on the air. Sarah, it was lovely chatting with you. Thank you so much. Love the work that you're doing. And thank you for bringing Bobby into this conversation. That was super fun. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super hyped. That's our show. Again, I want to thank Sarah Harrison and Bobby Gill for joining us. And thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Find us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. And we have an awesome weekly email newsletter you can sign up for right on our website. Get the latest from Design Museum in your inbox, including info on the latest podcast episode. But you've subscribed, right? So you're going to get the episode wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're doing that, please be sure to rate and review this show. Those ratings and reviews really help us reach more people so we can keep chatting about the transformative power of design. Thanks for that. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk again next week.